Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman, and we're here with the bishop in the Archbishop Knoll Center. And thank you for joining us again today. You're welcome. Great to be with you again, Kyle, and with all the listeners. We always like to begin, since this airs at noon on Wednesdays, with the Angelus. So do you have any intention for our Angelus this morning? Yes, I was thinking, you know, yesterday we celebrated the Feast of Mother Teresa, and I just thought maybe to pray for the missionaries of charity and um, the religious order that she founded, and also the poor, because, of course, that was Mother Teresa's whole mission was to serve Jesus in the poor. All right. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The angel of the Lord declared unto Mary, and she conceived of the Holy Spirit, Hail Mary, full, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Behold the handmaid of the Lord. Be done unto me according to your word. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. And the Word was made flesh. And dwelt among us. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Pray for us, O Holy Mother of God, that we may be made worthy of the promises of Christ. Let us pray. Pour forth, we beseech you, O Lord, your grace into our hearts, that we to whom the incarnation of Christ your Son was made known by the message of an angel, may by his passion and cross be brought to the glory of his resurrection through the same Christ our Lord. Amen. Saint Mother Teresa of Calcutta. Pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. On this episode, Bishop Kevin Rhodes, Bishop of Fort Wayne South Bend, shares his favorite memories of Mother Teresa, now Saint Teresa of Calcutta, and also the order she created, the Missionaries of Charity. Then it's on to the charitable works of the Catholic Church in our country and throughout the world. The show wraps up with Bishop Rhodes answering questions submitted by listeners. If you would like to submit a question for Bishop to answer on a future show, go to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman, and as you mentioned, Bishop, yesterday was the feast day for St. Teresa of Calcutta. Many people know her as Mother Teresa, and... I always loved talking with you about her because you actually got to meet her and actually said masses for the Sisters of Charity. And so you gave homilies in front of St. Teresa of Calcutta. Yeah. Talk about being nervous, yeah. preaching, to, w- knowing that that woman was a saint, which I did know already at the yeah. time we knew. And she would be there. I never knew when she would be there. This was at a place called San Gregorio in Rome, not real far from the Colosseum, but I would go early in the morning, like 6, 6.30, I forget, and I would celebrate Mass for the sisters, the missionaries at charity, every week. And then I'd celebrate also at a, a big place right next to it of homeless people that the missionaries of charity took care of. Uh, so I'd celebrate that Mass in Italian. The Mass in the, with the sisters would be in English because that's the language of the community. Right. But Mother would be in Rome 
I'd say a few times each year because she'd be meeting with Pope John Paul, two saints, you know. And um, but I, you never knew ahead of time. So we weren't allowed to wear shoes at mass, by the way. So I'd be in bare feet celebrating mass in the chapels of the missionaries of charity, and I'd look up. And she'd always be, if mother was there, she'd always be, and they'd sit on the floor and kneel on the floor. There were no chairs, no benches. She'd be in the very back. So after Mass, whenever mother was there, I got to talk with her a little bit. and It was great. But one of the best memories I have is my mother. My mom was real devout. And when I returned to Rome to do further studies as a young priest, I had a pilgrimage of my parishioners. It was St. Patrick's Parish in York, Pennsylvania. So my mom joined the pilgrimage. I was real excited. And my real wish and hope was I wanted her to get to meet Pope John Paul. So during the um, the pilgrimage, and there were like, I don't know how many people, maybe about 40 people from the parish who came on the pilgrimage. But like, I really wanted her to get to meet Pope John Paul. So we were at a Wednesday audience, and we had really good tickets. It was near the front, but we weren't close enough. So she didn't get to, get to meet him. Uh-huh. So I was real sad, and I didn't let on that I was disappointed. So after the audience ended, I thought, oh, why don't we go? I'll show them San Gregorio, and they can meet the missionaries of charity. That would be good. My mom would get to meet the sisters, because I was close to them. You know, They were just wonderful, wonderful uh-huh. women, joyful. So we went up to, to San Gregorio, and the sister was a German sister, answered the door, who was probably the one I knew the best. She was wonderful. By the way, she's now the superior general oh, really? of the missionaries of charity. Sis- yeah. yeah, Sister Prima. So Sister Prima answers the door. Now, I had just come back because I was home for the summer so I just come back so she was happy to see me I was happy to see her I said I have my mom here I said this is my mother Mary Rhodes and oh she said so happy to meet you and all that and then Sister Prima took me to the side and said Father Kevin uh, Mother Teresa's here do you want me to go get her to meet your mom well I was so sad (laughs) that my mom didn't get to meet John Paul yeah and so I didn't tell my mom so Sister Prima went and brought mother down. You should have seen the look on my mom's face. Yeah, I mean, she was speechless. She was, you know, the tears filled up. It was just such a beautiful encounter. I thought, wow, this wasn't part of my plan. I didn't even know Mother Teresa was in Rome. So that was really special. And then I'll never forget Mother Teresa said to my mom, thank you for giving your son as a priest for the church, as a priest of Jesus. It was just meant so much to my mother. So that's probably the most, I'd say the, you know, the best memory I have. I, I also saw Mother Teresa, met with her for about an hour in Washington, D.C. when we were trying to get the missionaries of charity to open a house in Harrisburg. I was the pastor of a very poor parish in a very poor neighborhood in Harrisburg. It was an ideal place for the missionaries of charity. It never materialized, although Mother was um, open to sending sisters. But then the new bishop didn't. We got a new bishop in Harrisburg, and he didn't follow up with the request. So we never hmm. got them. But but that was another neat experience. So, yeah, I, I love Mother Teresa. What a, what a great holy woman. We were blessed, I think, with these two saints of our lifetime, John Paul II and Mother Teresa of Calcutta. So yesterday we celebrated her her feast day, very special day. How did you get involved with the Missionaries of Charity to begin with? Did you, is that something you volunteered for? Is that something they asked you to do? I volunteered, yeah, because I always loved Mother Teresa and her charism. 
her commitment and love for the poor. So I started doing the Italian mass at the place for the homeless. And then when I got to know the sisters better there at San Gregorio, they asked me then, oh, would you do another mass every week in English uh-huh. for the sisters? Of course, it was like six o'clock in the morning, I was, <laughs> you know, but I was happy to do it because I had to get up even earlier to walk from yeah. where I was living all the way to San Gregorio, which is, as I said, right near the Colosseum. It's up a hill called the Chalian Hill, one of the seven hills of Rome. So it was an early morning, but it was neat. I'd be walking you know, in the morning by the Roman Forum and then walk around the Colosseum and up to the sisters. I received so much more than I gave. It was just a great way to start the day. How many times do you think you met between St. Teresa of Calcutta and St. Pope John Paul II? How many times did you meet those two saints? I never really added them up. I would guess, um, I mean, I saw John Paul hundreds of times, but I would say speaking with him, I would say probably six or seven times. Yeah. And mother probably about the same. Maybe, wow. well, with her coming to the masses, we would talk after mass. It might have been even eight or nine times with mother. Yeah. Such an amazing opportunity. Oh, yeah. I mean, those two, I love them so much. I mean, they, they've inspired me. As it, when I was a young man and, and still inspire me today. They've left a great legacy too. You know, the Missionaries of Charity, it's amazing, her whole vocation, but I was, you know, some people were worried, well, what are gonna happen to the Missionaries of Charity after she dies? Will they be able to continue? I think there were close to 4,000 sisters when she died, hmm. but there are over 5,000 today. Yeah. So the community continues to grow, which I think is a work of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. The motto of the Missionaries of Charity, or at least what they have written up on their chapel and many prayers and things like that, is the I thirst. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about what that means? Yeah, it expresses so much the um, spirituality of Mother Teresa. And in every chapel of the Missionaries of Charity, they have those words on the back wall next to the altar, I thirst. And of course, they're that's one of the seven last words of Jesus from the cross, I thirst. So the idea is that that Mother Teresa writes about is how Jesus thirsts for our love. Mm -hmm. So Jesus cries out still in the world today, I thirst for your love. That's really the work, you know, and the life of the missionaries of charity is to satiate that thirst. And especially the poor, our love for the poor. Because as Mother so beautifully saw, she saw Jesus in every poor person, the poorest of the poor, people with disease, people who were dying, the lepers, and she she saw Jesus in everyone. And that probably wasn't easy at times. She chose a very difficult, or she responded to a very difficult call, I should say. Uh, and she did that under some difficult situation because she didn't necessarily always feel the presence of God. She talks about the dark night of the soul Uh, Can you talk a little bit about that experience for her? Yeah, well, she had this call within a call. She was a sister of Loretto, so she was teaching, but it was teaching the the girls of wealthy families in Calcutta and India. She saw these poor people, so, and she actually heard Christ's voice. It was an interlocution to leave the sisters of Loretto, and, and she had had really what we would call 
by that time, she was such a woman of prayer. She had gone through the stages, the purgative stage, and had this sense of union with Jesus, this great joy and peace, kind of a mystical union with Jesus. But then she had this call to enter into his suffering. And it's kind of interesting when she started the missionary charity, which wasn't easy. She had to you know, get the approval of the bishop and eventually the approval of Rome and all this. So it was, it was a huge sacrifice. She really stepped out in faith, but she, she knew this was what the Lord was calling her to do. And then what happened to her? Her prayer became very dry, what they call the dark night of the soul. She didn't feel God's presence in her life. Imagine that, that struggle. But yet she persevered with faith, even though she didn't feel anything. And what's interesting is she saw that, and I think this is really something beautiful to think about, as her participating in that desolation and suffering of Jesus on the cross, especially Jesus's desolation in the Garden of Gethsemane. So the darkness in faith, she saw that as uniting her to the darkness that Jesus felt. Now, this gets pretty deep. I mean, I really recommend the book about this. If our listeners are interested in learning more about the darkness uh, that Mother Teresa uh, had, it was that you know she didn't have consolation mm-hmm. when she prayed. She didn't have that, like she used to have, that consolation of union. This was like a pain of, she lost it. She lost that. Some people, this, this kind of bothered them when they found out after she was beatified, that she lived this experience of darkness. But it's kind of a rare thing that that she had this union with Jesus, but she was united with his, his darkness, his experience in the Garden of Gethsemane and on the cross. I'm trying to remember, oh, the title of the book is, it's by a missionary of charity, priest, by the way, mm-hmm. who was the postulator for her cause of canonization. His name is Father Kolodichuk, and the title of the book is Come Be My Light. Come Be My Light. And you kind of then learn a little bit about the inner life of Mother Teresa. She never wanted this, by the way, ever to be public. Yeah. But the fact is, she surrendered and accepted this darkness, and she offered it up. You wouldn't have known it. I mean, when I was with her, I would never have suspected that. Yeah. Her joy was always very very palpable she was humorous but she she really is what can be called a saint of darkness Hmm. but it was to give light to those in darkness i think that's how she understood it that god was allowing this extreme darkness in her life to bring light to others and then was her canonization process sped up a little bit yeah, I think that, you know, usually they can't begin until five years after the person's death. And I think John Paul did away with that. And I think they got working on the cause right away because uh-huh. everybody knew she was a saint. Yeah. John Paul knew she was a saint. Yeah, I've yeah. heard quite a few different miracles that people have experienced around her. And did you ever experience any of that? Or have you heard stories of that? I've heard stories. I myself did not experience anything. Um, I wasn't looking for anything. But, you know, no, I've heard that as well. Yeah. 
All right. Well, coming up, we'll have more discussion with our bishop. We'll talk a little bit about charity in the church, and then we'll take questions from you right here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman, and we've been talking with Bishop about Mother Teresa, St. Teresa of Calcutta, and the Missionaries of Charity. And the show is called Truth and Charity, which I kind of feel like truth and charity, you kind of uh, put a certain connotation to the word charity in that context, thinking of a truth with love or compassion. And then the missionaries of charity, or when we talk about Catholic charities, think more of... Uh, helping people in need and things like that. What does charity mean to you? I'd say all of the above. I mean, I think fundamentally, though, it's the the spirit of the love of Christ. So the word charity wouldn't be exhausted by material help. Uh, mm-hmm. Charity, in the Christian sense, the love of Christ is something deeper. I mean, it should it does bear fruit in the works of charity, works of helping our neighbor. But it's bigger than that. It's self-giving love. I've heard it said that the Catholic Church is the largest charitable organization in the world. Do you know if that's true? Yeah, I mean, it's you know, it's depending on how you would measure charity and how you define charity. Really, I don't think there's a church or organization in the world that does more to help those in need. Mm-hmm. But you can't just. It's not like you. Okay, you could look at one of these charitable foundations, and you can say, okay, they give such and such amount of money to help the poor every year in different ways. Mm-hmm. But when you look at the Catholic Church, how do you add that up? Now we do have an organization, Caritas. Caritas is kind of is Catholic charities in countries all over the world. In the United States, we have two Caritas agencies, which is very unusual. The one Caritas agency is is Catholic Charities, which is our relief and assistance to the poor within the United States. Our external Caritas organization is Catholic Relief Services, and that's where we help the poor in over a hundred countries around the world. But that's external to our country. So you look at that and you look at all the money. So you could measure that, all the money of Catholic charities, of Caritas, of Catholic Relief Services, or Caritas worldwide. But that doesn't exhaust. These are the Catholic aid agencies. But if you look at the Catholic Church, we also have 5,000 hospitals in the world. Yeah. We have 140,000 Catholic schools in the world. We have 10,000 orphanages. We have 16,000 other health clinics. Hmm. That doesn't even count all the charitable works and the development spending by Catholic religious orders, by other Catholic organizations. Just think of the charitable works by our parishes, mm-hmm. our St. Vincent de Paul Society. So. How do you add all that up? We don't have that statistic. So I think if you would add it up, it probably is the world's biggest charity, but it depends on how you define it and uh, how broadly or how narrowly you define it. But there's a huge amount of charitable work being done by the Catholic Church and Catholic institutions worldwide. And so Catholic Relief Services, CRS, and the Catholic Charities are both under an umbrella organization called Caritas? Yes, Caritas Internationalis, which is at the Vatican. But like, there's a Caritas or Catholic Caritas in Germany and England and Ireland, everywhere. Iraq, Syria, we have Caritas. But they're all under the umbrella of Caritas International, which is at the Vatican. Each one is its own entity. 
the umbrella organization doesn't control all those national organizations. You were on the board for CRS. That's right. How did that happen? I was elected by the bishops. That's an elected position. So oh. half the board members of Catholic Relief Services have to be bishops. So I was nominated a couple of years ago and, and was elected. I was happy because I don't usually like to, uh, I wasn't politicking or anything, Kyle. Yeah. But this was one organization I really wanted to serve on. Mm-hmm. You know, like sometimes you get nominated for committees of the USCCB, but they're normally appointed by the chairman. But this is one that actually they're ele- elected by the bishops. Now, I might, I think I'll be up for re-election to a second term, but I forget when, if that's this November or next November, I don't remember. But I've learned so much by being on the board that my, um, you know, I'm much even more impressed by and committed to CRS because of my experience on the board. Were you as passionate about helping people before you were working with Mother Teresa and the Sisters of Charity, or did that really kind of help boost your enthusiasm and desire to serve the poor? It definitely boosted my my enthusiasm. I was so moved by their example, their own poverty, but also the way they how they lovingly cared for the sick and the suffering. I mean, at this homeless place and in Rome where I had mass, I mean, there were some difficult people. I mean, people with mental illnesses, mm-hmm. people who were had different addictions. And I just saw the loving and tender care of the sisters for them and how it they just saw the dignity of every person. That really impressed me. I mean, I was very moved by that. I learned from them. I'm sure it would take hours, if not days, to explain all of the different things that CRS is doing. But can you highlight a few of the things that you mentioned that you're so uh, dedicated to? Well, one of the fortunate things about being on the board is we have to go on a trip every year to visit one of the sites. And my first year, I went to Haiti, and I Mm -hmm. wrote about that and shared pictures to people in the diocese. Last year, I was on the West Bank in Gaza. I did the same thing. This year, I think I'm scheduled to go to Ethiopia in March. Okay. Um, Yeah, I'm looking forward to that because I've never really been to Africa except the Sinai Peninsula. But just seeing firsthand, I mean, I'm, I'm impressed by many things. I would say CRS is great with relief you know when there's a disaster and i think we we've seen that like the earthquake in haiti or typhoons or the tsunami all those things catholic charities is right i mean catholic relief services is right there because we have the infrastructure we're all over the place so we can respond to these emergencies pretty quickly and in a very good way a very efficient way the other thing would be though the more long-term development efforts where it's really making a difference in people's lives, especially in the areas like agriculture and healthcare, farming in Africa. I mean, our biggest number of programs are in Africa, but just teaching good agriculture techniques to farmers. And it's not just coming in and giving charity. No, this is getting to the roots. This is helping people build a livelihood. That's what Catholic Relief Services does. So it's really helping people to help themselves. It's teaching the skills, um, maybe giving them the head start that they need to be successful in starting a business or in an agricultural project. I saw down in Haiti with the cocoa plantation things that they were teaching the people. So 
it's really very very good it's 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 the commitment to development and then that also leads to peace and we do have peace building projects too because a lot of times some of these problems people have are because of war and conflict violence in these different countries so we're also involved in helping to build peace teaching people helping people how to resolve conflicts peacefully and so all of that work is done outside of the United States? For all CRS? CRS is outside. We do have U.S. operations, but that U.S. operations is basically getting the people of the United States involved in, in uh, giving to CRS uh-huh. and supporting it, and also in the area of advocacy for international aid and development. And then what about the work of Catholic Charities? Catholic Charities has a similar mission, but it's within the United States. But mm-hmm. it's also helping people to build a livelihood. Various services. I mean, we have Catholic Charities USA, which is the umbrella group for, but each diocese has its own, like we do, our own separately incorporated Catholic Charities. We're trying to get more knowledge out to our people about the works of Catholic Charities in our diocese. I think people know how much work we've done in the resettlement of refugees where we've been a very major player in that. I think the biggest, definitely in Fort Wayne. But we also have other things. We have an ECHO program, which is excellent. It helps teenage girls who get pregnant to to continue be able to continue their education while also choosing life for their babies. We have works where we have senior citizens who are retired and the volunteer program for them. And there's a variety of, of projects. We do some direct aid. You know, we have the mobile units now where we can go around. We're a good referral agency where we do intakes, find out the different issues that the poor might be needing help in and then finding the resources for them. I wish it was better known. You know, we try need to spread the word a little bit more about the works of Catholic Charities and CRS. Yeah. I would say in our high schools, all of our high schools are plugged into CRS programs because they have good educational programs hmm. where they can learn about the the development needs around the world and our young people really get engaged with it and then they do things to raise money for crs and yeah. to to help support the mission is there anything available for our catholic elementary schools you know we've been focusing right now on the high schools when it comes to crs i would like to do more in the grade schools but at this point we've the primary focus has been with the high schools okay yeah All right. Well, we definitely encourage people to support CRS and Catholic Charities, uh, but also be kind of curious if you have any input on how we can be missionaries within our own communities and families. Mother Teresa had as a quote, if you want to change the world, go home and love your family. Love begins at home. That's definitely true. I mean, I think if we're going to build a civilization of love in our world, it has to begin in our own families and our own neighborhoods. I think Mother Teresa is right on. And in some ways, if we don't love those with whom we live and work and just love those who are far away and, and can be like strangers, there's something amiss. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, if you have questions, you can submit those by going to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. Also, you can call or text the Holy Cross College text line at 260 260- And coming up, we'll ask questions submitted by listeners right here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman, and we're answering the questions that you have submitted. 
Our first question comes from a parishioner at St. John's in Goshen who said, I'm embarrassed to say that my family is having financial issues. We do not live above our means, but struggle to maintain our values while keeping up with others. Where does the church stand on finances and how to handle them? Well, that's a lot of things that can be said about this quite broadly. But first of all, I don't think you should be embarrassed if you're having financial issues. I, I mean, many people have financial issues. I don't think it should be a cause of embarrassment. I guess one could be embarrassed if one has squandered things mm-hmm. in, a, in an irresponsible way. But that doesn't seem how the caller I think they just find themselves in difficult financial straits. We should not separate the financial or economic part of our life from our spiritual life. I think we need to live an integrated life. Our faith should touch every aspect of our life, Mm -hmm. including what we do with our money. Certainly the first priority for a family is the parents to provide for their children. I mean, that's, that's an important responsibility, obviously. But then when we look at how we handle finances, I think it's very important that we be responsible, that we avoid that, that inner attitude of greed. That's what Jesus spoke often about. He said, avoid greed in all its forms. Avarice, it's one of the seven deadly sins. So if we see that creeping into our life, it really does damage spiritually. And we can counter it by greater generosity, by making sacrifices, almsgiving. Avoiding wastefulness, I think, is really important. Wastefulness with food. Buying excessive amounts of clothes when we have so many people who are in need of clothing. You know, it gets to the principle of stewardship, recognizing mm-hmm. that everything we have comes from God, is a gift for God. But it's not just for ourselves. It's to be shared. It's that virtue of solidarity with our neighbor. I think it's something that's good to do in one's examination of conscience. I wonder how many of us, before we go to confession, ask ourselves, well, what have I been doing with my money? Mm. You know, have I just been using it selfishly? Or have I been generous with the church, with charities, etc. I'm not saying that we have to be cheap. Uh, you know, I think of simple things. You know, if you're out to dinner, there's nothing wrong with going out to a nice dinner. I mean, but then leave a generous tip for the waiter or waitress who may be struggling to make ends meet. I mean, there's so many ways where we can exercise kind of that detachment from our money, detachment Mm -hmm. from material things. The problem is we live in a culture of consumerism, which sends the message all the time that having a lot of things, having a lot of products, buying a lot of things, it's so consumer-oriented that that's the way to happiness, and we know that's not true. I mean, Jesus talked about how we're not going to find happiness in those things. Remember the story of the rich young man? He couldn't let go of his riches, and what happened? He went away sad, not happy. I think also for those who are blessed with a lot of material wealth, you know, how do you invest it? You know, I think ethical investing or faith-based investing is a very good thing to consider. We're very careful, for example, the savings of the money of the diocese that it's ethically responsible, that we don't invest in any company or whatever that is um, 
does things that are against our moral beliefs. So we have what we call socially responsible investing according to our values. I think that should also be a practice for Catholic families. When people are blessed with material wealth, what do they do with it? I know a lot of people in our diocese, wealthy Catholics, who are incredibly generous, mm-hmm. who really aren't attached to their money. And they, they, they fund so many good things. They help uh, with tuition aid and all kinds of stuff. They help with all kinds of, of, of charities of the church, parishes, the diocese. We aren't supposed to be hoarding things. With somebody that is struggling with finances, uh, are they still expected to tithe? You know, that's a good question. I, I know people who really who struggle with finances and still tithe, maybe not the full 10% or 5%, but in a sense, they, they're trusting in God and saying, okay, I really can't afford, but I'm going to put this money in anyhow, trusting in God that God will provide. And I think that kind of spirituality is praiseworthy. Mm-hmm. I will mention, too, that I've met a few people that have really benefited from Dave Ramsey's Financial Peace University that's offered at a couple of different places across our diocese. And so if somebody is struggling with finances, that might be a good way to help you get out of debt. Um, another question, we talked about bells ringing at Mass, and we got a similar, maybe a follow-up question to that. I was told as a child that when the bell is rung during Mass, that is the most sacred moment of Mass, and we should bow our head. Is that true? Oh, I don't remember hearing about, there's nothing requiring that. I, I never had that custom of bowing the head, but I know that um, there's three moments. Some play, You don't have to have the ring of the bells, but the three times would be at the epiclesis when the priest is calling on the power of the Holy Spirit to transform the bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ. Very important prayer, mm-hmm. very sacred moment. And then when after the priest pronounces the words of Jesus over the elements, this is my body. Then he elevates the host. This is chalice of my blood and elevates the chalice. Then the bells are rung because that's considered the moment of the transubstantiation of the Eucharistic change. So I'd say it is the most sacred moment of the mass. Okay. And I think that's why they ring bells uh-huh. as a, calling that to attention. So one could make a bow of the head, but it does call to mind the sacredness of that moment. Okay. But Maybe the bow isn't required? No. Okay. Aaron Hecber from St. Jude Parish in Fort Wayne asked, why aren't any of the Old Testament people named saint? Or, if they are, why don't we refer to them as such? I never hear of St. Moses or St. Elijah. You know what? If you went to an Eastern Catholic church, you would. Oh, really? Yeah, the Eastern Catholic churches. Now, I would say we don't have any Old Testament figures on the universal calendar of the church to be observed as saints' days. Right. Though you do find them in the Orthodox calendar and in the Eastern Catholic calendar, but not in the Latin. But I think it's because when you think about how was our calendar formed, at first only martyrs were remembered, had memorials Mm -hmm. on their anniversaries, the anniversaries of their martyrdom. So at the very first centuries of the church, It was the martyrs, their days of death. Then there would be feasts in honor of the Blessed Virgin Mary. That developed a little bit later. And then other saints. The earliest canonized saint, probably, who wasn't a martyr, was a bishop, St. Martin of Tours. Hmm. And he died in the year 397. 
so these saints, as, as, as the process of canonization developed and they're placed on the calendar, they really were men and women who were heroic examples of the life in Christ. And of course, the Old Testament saints were preceded Christ, you know. Mm-hmm. But then in the later Middle Ages, there was a liturgical book called the Roman Martyrology. It came out in 1600. It was published with all the names of the saints and the blessed and the stories of the saints and blesseds that were officially recognized by the church. And and the way the martyrology was organized, it was according to their feast days. And so they all had like days assigned to them. They did include saints of the Old Testament. They would include, for example, the prophet Habakkuk, celebrated on January 15th. Isaiah, July 6th, Daniel, July 20th, Elias, July 21st, the seven Maccabees and their mother, August 17th, Abraham, October 9th, King David, December 29th. So they were there. And even today, notice we in the Litany of Saints, that when we sing the Litany of Saints, we we invoke all holy patriarchs and prophets pray for us. Uh Notice in the Roman canon, the first Eucharistic prayer, we mention as examples of true devotion to God, Abel, Abraham, and Melchizedek. Anyhow, you can, I guess to make this answer shorter, we can invoke these Old Testament saints, even though we don't have specific feast days on the calendar. They were included in the Roman Martyrology, and we do see specific feast days in the calendar of the Eastern Catholic churches, like the Byzantine church, the Ukrainian church. I would also mention if you go to Sacred Heart in Fort Wayne or St. Stanislaus in South Bend, Mm -hmm. where they have the Latin Mass, the old Latin Mass, it's called the Extraordinary Form of the Roman Rite. Uh They have on their calendar, on August 1st, the Feast of the Holy Maccabees. That's an Old Testament feast. So anyhow, that was a pretty long answer to a rather uh, straightforward question. So sorry about that. Yeah. So is it okay or we shouldn't use no, the title use saint. saint? You can use saint. But they're not canonized. They're recognized. Um, I mean, you have to be careful, though. I'd say look at what the Eastern Catholic recognizes saints. I mean, there's some of those Old Testament figures you don't want to <laughs> say saints. We don't want to canonize them. But the ones I mentioned, the Maccabees, the seven holy Maccabees and their mother, definitely. I yeah. mean, they're on, they're on the calendar of the, the, uh, the Latin Mass. Uh-huh. Um, some of these prophets like Habakkuk. But you could check those out. I mean, check out the Eastern, like the Melkite or the Byzantine Catholic calendar and see which saints are there or check the Orthodox calendar too, but the Orthodox aren't united with Rome. But Eastern Catholic churches do have specific feast days for Old Testament figures. And the Eastern Catholic churches are part of the Catholic church. Yeah. So that's fine. All right. Well, if you have questions, you can go to redeemerradio.com slash askbishop and submit your questions there. Or call or text the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. And we'll answer more of your questions right here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity. I am Kyle Hyman here with Bishop Rhodes, and we're answering questions that you have submitted 
And this next question comes from a parishioner from Cathedral of the Immaculate Conception. If we should die immediately after a good confession or baptism, may we be certain of the salvation of our souls? When you talk about certainty, definitely we speak about our hope in sal- of salvation. We talk about our firm hope of salvation, but we don't speak of metaphysical certainty we don't, or intellectual certainty. Only God knows the state of our souls, and that's why we can never judge. Now, I think if someone, let's say a, a baby, someone before the use of reason is baptized and dies, yeah, there's certainty that person's heaven, even an adult. But you'd have to trust that they were, they had the right intention in being baptized. So that's something, that's why I would be a little careful in answering yes to that question, because Mm -hmm. how do we know whether a person had the right intention of being baptized or made a good confession? Mm -hmm. So I would also say you could have the assurance of God's forgiveness in the sacrament of penance, but one has to be properly disposed to receive the grace of the sacrament. But remember, that doesn't take away the temporal punishment. So even though there'd be great confidence in salvation, that doesn't mean straight to heaven. Purgatory may be needed. But assuming a good confession or a well-intentioned baptism right before death, could we have certainty that we're going to I think so. Purgatory? We have certainty of salvation, uh-huh. which could be purgatory, okay. or it could be heaven immediately for that matter. Is there a difference between being baptized right before death, having a good confession right before death, and last rites before death? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, last rites depends on what you're including. Typically, last rites would include the anointing of the sick, penance, sacrament penance, and viaticum, holy communion. Mm -hmm. But some people aren't able because they're near death. Maybe Mm -hmm. they don't have the ability to go to confession or even to receive communion. So they may only be anointed. But there's a there's a power to those last rites for sure the power of Christ's grace at that moment. Is there a hierarchy between the the three different? Well, the Eucharist is always the greatest. I mean, always the the greatest sacrament. It's really the last sacrament, should be the last sacrament. That's why we call it viaticum, with you on the way. But of course, one should not receive the Eucharist if one is not in the state of grace. So one needs to have confession beforehand. All right. We had another question here. Some people bow or make the sign of cross at the beginning of the glory be prayer. Should that be something we do while praying the glory be to the Father, to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit? No. Well, you can, but it's not required. Where I usually see the bowing is usually monks. If you pray the office in common, like in a monastery or something, it's very customary for every all the monks to bow when they say glory be to the father and to the son and to the holy spirit some seminaries i see them doing that but there's no rubric that that i know of that calls for that in ordinary circumstances outside of a monastery okay and the sign of the cross as no well. i don't i don't know that i even see that i don't even see that in a monastery i do it if i don't realize somebody said glory be and i just hear the I mean, there's nothing wrong with making the sign of the cross at that time. Yeah. But there's definitely no no requirement of it. All right. We have another question here. Is it wrong to address you as father instead of bishop? (laughs) You know, there's a lot of times 
after mass when I'm greeting people, there, there oftentimes there'll be a few people who will say, good morning, Father, because they're used to say, seeing their priest as uh -huh. they're leaving. And then they'll say, oh, sorry, I mean bishop. <laughs> I said, oh, don't worry about it. I'm still a spiritual father. Yeah. But I mean, the proper way to address me is bishop. But if you say father, it doesn't bother me at all. <laughs> I, I always say I'm still a spiritual father. Uh -huh. Yeah. Maybe slip one more in here. When should people sit after communion? Do they wait for Father to sit or wait for the tabernacle to be closed up? Is there? I, I'd say when the tabernacle door is closed. Okay. That's my opinion. Okay. Yep. All right. <laughs> well, thank you, Bishop. And uh, thank you for all of those that submitted questions. You can do that at RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. And before we go, could we get your Episcopal blessing? Be glad to. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now and forever. Our help is in the name of the Lord. Who made heaven and earth. May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Bishop. You're welcome, Kyle. Join us every Wednesday at noon for Truth in Charity with Bishop Rhodes. Or listen anytime, anywhere online at RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop, which is also where you'll find past episodes. Thanks to Notre Dame Federal Credit Union for underwriting this program.